Thank you, brother. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we are in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation this evening, as we introduced that in the last message that we had in this uh, series entitled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Um, but we introduced the idea of the millennial kingdom, but we really didn't explore it a great deal. And I know that you've been on the edge of your seats waiting with bated breath to find out uh, where this guy stands on the millennium. And uh, that can be dangerous territory, but we're going to uh, wade into these waters a little bit this evening. Uh, it's sort of a bit of millennial madness that we face. And uh, how many of you remember Y2K? Remember that Y2K? That, and pe people were so agitated about Y2K because remember when the, the clocks changed uh, over from uh, the late, the end of 99 into 2000, people were desperately afraid that uh, the whole world would go into chaos because the, uh, uh, the computers were all set up to only deal with dates in two digits. And so you're going to go from 99 to 00. And uh, was that going to be 1900, or was that going to be 2000, and what, would, what, were gonna, what was going to happen to the world? And uh, people were very concerned about that. And of course, as you recall, there was a lot of uh, interest also with respect to the uh, religious communities around. Everything tends to ramp up a bit with re with re when you get to a millennial year, and uh, it was quite exciting. Turned out to be uh, much ado about much of nothing, right, pretty much. Y2K was kind of that way. Um, for better or for worse, uh, Christians have had, uh, we've had our own millennial madness from time to time uh, because we haven't always seen this chapter in the same way. And it's remarkable how seriously some people take a particular position on the millennium. Uh, it's almost for some people an essential article of faith, uh, like justification by faith alone or the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, for others, uh, they really uh, ha are sort of ambivalent about the issue of the millennium, and for still others, they're asking, what was that? Well, what is the millennium? And so we're going to try to sort some of those kinds of things out a little bit this evening, but it was un it's unfortunate uh, to see uh, Christians divided over this particular issue, and they are. Obviously, there are denominational divisions that break out along uh, lines with respect to the millennium. Um, groups accuse others of disregarding scripture, or others accuse those groups of disregarding some foundational hermeneutical principles, principles of a biblical interpretation. And so uh, people can have very strong feelings about the millennium uh, uh, that we're approaching uh, this, in this, this particular chapter. I wish I had a nickel for every person that had a strong position on the millennium and couldn't spell it. I mean, I just, it's amazing how that works. Now, here's, here's one thing that you need to understand. The village church is made up of people from 25 different denominational backgrounds or more. And so you can take this to the bank, dear friends, that there are people in this congregation and in this community representing every position that I'm about to describe uh, in this message this evening. Your friends, your neighbors, people that you love, they love Jesus, they love the Word of God, they take seriously the Word of God, they are people that you know and love in this congregation, and they will represent every single position that I'm going to describe. But what's remarkable to me about the, the nature of the feelings that people have over millennial positions uh, is that there is only one place in the entire Bible that explicitly mentions the millennium, and that's in Revelation 20. The only passage in all of Scripture that explicitly says something about a period of time lasting 1,000 years. So that's a good place to start, don't you think? So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we'll look at the first 10 verses initially, and then I'll go a little bit farther than that, so that we can get a, a sense about what the text actually says and then we'll try to sort out some of the positions that people have taken uh, on this issue. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's where you get the term millennium, a thousand years. 
and the devil is said to be bound for that period of time. Verse 3, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And so in the millennium, the devil is prevented from deceiving the nations for that thousand years. And then following the thousand years, he is said to be released briefly, presumably to then deceive the nations once again. Verse 4, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the martyrs and those who were faithful, even during the times of great persecution, are said to have come to life at the beginning of the 1,000 years, at the beginning of the millennium, and they reigned with Christ for that period of time. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And so, up to this point in the passage, martyrs and faithful believers are raised in this first resurrection, and the unbelieving dead are not raised until the end of the 1,000 years. That's what the text says. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, this, of course, refers to the martyrs and faithful believers who have died and they are raised in the first resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, and they are said to not be subject to the second death, and they will be priests and will reign for 1,000 years. And verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so Satan's release will lead once again to the deception of the nations. The deception will lead to this grand preparation for war and many are said to have been involved in that gathering. Verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And so there comes the time for this grand war. They surround the believers, presumably around the city of Jerusalem, but the battle never actually takes place, you'll notice. Fire comes down and kills the enemies of the saints. And then verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet for everlasting torment. And then following the millennium, according to this chapter, we pick it up in verse 11, is the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And so we see essentially Jesus on the great white throne to judge the nations. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And so this is judgment according to the works which were written in the books. Everything human beings do and have done have been recorded. And the sea, verse 13, gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So this is the judgment of dead unbelievers, those who were not raised in the first resurrection that we mentioned a moment ago. Verse 14, 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So unbelievers were then thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment is then referred to as the second death. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so only believers, of course, are in the book of life, and everyone else is judged accordingly. Now, only the first 10 verses speak of the millennium. Verses 11 to 15 speak of what happens at the conclusion of the millennium. Well, let's back up and sort of start to unpack all of this kind of thing. What is the millennium? Well, the millennium is uh, a thousand years, another name for saying a thousand years. That's what the word millennium means. Now, one of the great questions uh, that we have before us, does that mean actual years, like a thousand literal years? Or is a thousand years or the millennium essentially used metaphorically, speaking of a really, really long time? And the answer is, moving right along. That's one of the things that, that uh, people are divided on in the theological community, whether it's actual literal a thousand years or whether it's a long period of time. And by the way, a thousand years is used in other places in the Bible to sort of represent extended periods of time. Um, and so it could go either way in my view, but that's one question. Another question is the character of the millennium. What is the millennium really like? Uh, because according to this passage, the devil is restrained and he's no longer able to deceive. And because in the millennium, Christ reigns with his believing people, the millennium is thought to be a time of extraordinary peace and justice and righteousness on the earth. It's made up of people those people were those raised in the first resurrection. These were glorified believers. And those remaining who are still there are sinful people. Their sin is restrained, however, compared to today. There is no Satan to deceive, and Christ is reigning and ruling during this millennium. And so presumably there are opportunities for some of those sinners who are alive during that particular time actually to be saved, converted to Christ during this millennium period. And so in the millennium, you kind of have a mixture. There are glorified believers, because they had been the martyrs and the faithful who have, been, who have died. They've been raised with Christ. They're glorified believers. And then there are unbelieving sinners who have not yet been raised from the dead. And so you have believers not yet glorified. And then you have believers who weren't glorified but became believers during the millennium. And you have some who were simply sinners during the millennium. All that takes place after the millennium began, according to our text. And so some of the questions that have been uh, dealt with and, and wrestled with by theologians over the years uh, concerning the millennium has to do, first of all, what is the nature of the millennium? I've started to give you a bit of a preview about that. And then when does it happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? That's sort of the main one. When does the millennium happen with respect to the second coming of Christ? And then when does the millennium happen with respect to the great tribulation that we've been studying about in the book of Revelation? Well, there are four options for the millennium positions. And let me first of all say before we get into those options that as I mentioned a few moments ago, there are people who uh, you know in this congregation that represent every single one of these four options. You can count on it just because of the diversity of backgrounds uh, that we have in the village church and in, in this particular community. So it's important to recognize, uh, first of all, that people who have adopted these particular options uh, are not completely off the rails with respect to biblical Christianity. Because these are people who love Jesus, they love the Word of God, they study the Word of God. They're serious about the Word of God. The Word of God is the authority for them, and yet they come to a different conclusion, perhaps, than others with respect to the millennium. So please understand that that's the case. We're not talking about uh, an issue that divides uh, conservative evangelical Christians with liberals who don't regard the Scripture as being authoritative. Liberalism, theological liberalism I'm talking about here, not political. Theological liberalism is unbelief, is a rejection of Jesus and who he is as his person and nature 
according to the scriptures. It's a rejection of the word of God. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about Bible-believing people who take the scriptures seriously and who love Jesus, who have adopted one or the, of these four particular positions. So let's talk about each one of them so you get a sense about that. The first position we'll look at is amillennialism. Amillennialism. Uh, that uh, is the simplest, I think, form or understanding of uh, the millennium, uh, of all of those positions. And it's simple because essentially it involves uh, this particular graphic, which uh, we'll see in a moment. And if you're able to see that, what you have is the church age leading up to the second coming of Christ. And then after the second coming of Christ, you have the eternal state. It's very simple. Church age, the second coming of Christ is where that uh, throne is, and then you have the eternal state. Everything else that takes place, essentially according to the amillennialist point of view, happens when Christ returns. When Christ returns, you have the resurrection of believers, you have the resurrection of unbelievers, you have the judgment, and you have the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the word amillennialism literally means no millennium. And so in that picture, you don't see anything that says millennium. There's no M sitting there uh, trying to designate when the millennium actually takes place because uh, the amillennialist position is essentially one that does not believe there will be a future millennium period of time. Now, I think that a lot of amillennialists are uh, disenchanted with the name amillennialism. It's not that they don't believe that there is a millennium, it's that they look at the millennium as essentially coextensive with the church age. That uh, they would not say that they don't believe in, that they believe in no millennium, they would probably rather say they believe in a realized millennium, that we're actually in the millennium right now. And the significance of that for their particular theological system is that they look at the growth of the kingdom of Christ happening at the same time as the growth, growth of evil as it continues to develop uh, through the end of time until Christ returns. So that's essentially the simplistic position of amillennialism. Now before you say, oh I don't believe that, who could possibly believe that? I'll tell you why people believe that in a few moments and we'll look at each of these positions in a little greater detail. I'm just laying out the position for you, that's amillennialism. The second position we'll look at is post-millennial, post-millennialism, and uh, post-millennial means, well, post means after, and millennium means millennium, and so this refers to the second coming of Christ happening after the millennium. That's post-millennialism. And so when the graphic is shown here, that's essentially what you have. You have uh, the church age uh, leading into the millennium. And then at the conclusion of the millennium, you have the return of Christ, and then after that, there is the, uh, then there is the eternal state that unfolds. That's the position of post-millennialism. Um, the church then, or this is an optimistic view, by the way, of the church, that the church, under the power of the Holy Spirit, makes great progress in the communication of the gospel and establishing the kingdom of Christ on earth. Uh, the church is successful in growing the kingdom. The church becomes more and more influential as time goes on. The church yields an extensive period as time goes on of increasing peace and justice and righteousness. And so the church age produces the millennium uh, after which then Christ returns and then establishes the eternal state. And like amillennialism, everything else that we know of happening at the end of time happens at the second coming of Christ. There's the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of unbelievers, the judgment, uh, the great white throne judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. That's post-millennialism. Now, uh, the third position is called premillennialism. Uh, we're looking at two positions on premillennialism. The first one is called historic premillennialism. Sometimes it's called classical premillennialism. And uh, pre, as you all know, means before, and millennium means millennium. And so what premillennialism means is that Christ comes before the millennium. 
which is the opposite of post-millennialism, which means Christ comes after the millennium. So premillennialism comes, Christ comes before the millennium. So in this graphic that uh, we'll put up here, you see that there is the church age, and you'll find a T at the end of the church age. That's the tribulation taking place at the end of the church age. And then you have the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming of Christ, you have the resurrection of believers. That is what is, then there's the rapture in which Christ catches up the believers as he returns in the air to be with Christ. And then there is the return to earth uh, of Christ with the believers to establish the millennium. And then the millennium takes place over a thousand year period. Uh, and then there is the, at the end of the millennium is the resurrection of the unbelievers and the judgment of unbelievers and then the eternal state ensues at that point according to historic uh, premillennialism. There's some debate about what the nature of the millennium is with respect to the earth. Some uh, premillennialists in this particular position believe that when the millennium is established we have a renewed earth. Uh, on the other hand, others don't believe that the renewed earth uh, comes until the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the millennium, but that's a little difference of opinion, uh, not really any definitive scriptures to say one way or the other. That's historic premillennialism. Church age, end of the church age, you have the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Christ returns, raptures his church into the air, brings them back to earth to reign with them for the thousand year period, the millennium, and then comes the end of the millennium, the judgment takes place as, as Christ then raises the unbelievers and judges them, and then the eternal state ensues. Uh, there's another position of premillennialism which is called pre-tribulational um, millennialism, sometimes called dispensationalism or dispensational uh, premillennialism. And essentially what that means is you have premillennialism, they believe that Christ comes when? before the millennium, and pre-tribulation means that Christ comes before the tribulation to rapture his church out of the earth. And so this graphic that you see represents that kind of thing. You have the church age, and then you have the resurrection of believers which takes place. Christ raptures the believers up, and uh, he does that before the tribulation so that the church is no longer present during the period of the tribulation. And that is what we might as well recognize as the first second coming of Christ. Okay, I'm serious. That's the first second coming of Christ. Christ comes to rapture his church and the church is taken out. Then you have a period of seven years of tribulation. And then after the seven years of tribulation, Christ comes back again at the end, and that would then be the second, second coming of Christ. <laughs> you follow me? That's essentially what you have in pre-tribulation, um, premillennialism. So you have Christ rapturing the church before the tribulation, then you have the tribulation for seven years, and then you have the second coming of Christ again with the, with, uh, with the believers to reign and rule, and then the millennium is established. And then at the end of the millennium, you have the resurrection of unbelievers, the judgment of unbelievers, the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. And uh, all of that unfolds uh, the way that diagram describes it. So you have four positions that people have held. Again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, serious about the Bible kinds of people who have adopted all of those positions. One other thing that I would say about pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism is that folks that adopt that particular position tend to have a very strong view of a clear distinction between the church and Israel. That they are not the same. That there's a program for Israel and that there's a program for the church and they are not at all the same. That's essentially indicative of, of uh, pre-tribulational um, premillennialism. Well, let's talk about uh, each one of these things and, and talk about why people actually adopt one or the others of these positions and what the arguments are for them. Uh, let's talk about, first of all, amillennialism. Uh, amillennialists will say, you know, there's really only one passage of Scripture that talks about the millennium. So let's not get too exercised about the millennium. There's only one text. 
I mean, that's kind of what they would say. Let's, let's not base our whole theology on these 10 verses out of Revelation chapter 20 uh, that we have in mind here. Uh, we, they all also say, our millennials will recognize, that there was, in fact, a sense of binding of Satan that took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, this is the position that recognizes that the millennium is coextensive with the church age, that when Jesus came back in his first coming, that what he did was he actually did establish his kingdom and began to reign and rule at that particular point in time. So you have, for instance, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, how can anyone, Jesus says, enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Now the verse right before that tells why Jesus actually taught that. He's been accused of uh, casting out demons by the power of the devil. And verse 28 of uh, Matthew 12 says this, but if I cast demon, out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom have, of God has come upon you. And that's what all millennials believe. They believe that Jesus, when he first came, established the kingdom of God then. And the kingdom began, he began to reign and rule in the kingdom at that point. Another verse is uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said to them, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And so the Amil position is that, in fact, when Jesus came the first time, he established the kingdom, he began to reign and rule, and they based that uh, not on their own uh, speculations, they based that on things that Jesus actually said in Scripture. They also uh, have the position that the binding that is referred to of Satan in Revelation 20 only refers to his ability to deceive the nations. And the evidence that they like to point to is that uh, missionary activity and expanding the gospel as it has, and really there's been remarkable progress in missionary activity all over the globe since the time of Jesus, indicates that in fact Satan has not been successful in preventing the spread of the gospel and the kingdom uh, in Gentile lands. Revelation 20 verse 4 mentions the souls of those who have been beheaded have come to life. The word came to life is used um, the Amils uh, don't believe that the souls represent bodies, but represent the spirits, the souls of individuals, and it refers to actually being taken into the presence of Christ. Remember that uh, when the thief on the cross uh, basically made his great confession, Jesus said to him, today you will be, what, with me in paradise. That is, his spirit would be with Jesus. That's the kind of coming to life that the Amils believe about those who are the martyrs or the faithful uh, during the, that period uh, as known as the tribulation. In verse 5 of, the, uh, of chapter 20 of Revelation, uh, the first resurrection is mentioned, and that, the Amil position would be that that means that these folks have, been gone, have, have gone to heaven to be with the Lord. It's that kind of resurrection uh, so that we are... Uh, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms even today, and that kind of resurrection is what is referred to there. Uh, Amils also would indicate that the scripture only teaches one resurrection. As we mentioned uh, before, as we look through the plain text of uh, Revelation 20, you have a first resurrection in which unbelievers are, or excuse me, believers are resurrected, and then later at the end of the millennium, uh, unbelievers are resurrected. So you have two different resurrections but most of the New Testament indicates that believers and unbelievers are raised not twice or two times, but in fact uh, are only raised once. So John chapter 5, verse 28 says, Do not marvel for this, for an hour is coming, an hour, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. You know, one resurrection Two different kinds of people seem to be mentioned in John chapter 5. Acts 24, verse 15. Uh, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall be certainly a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, is what Paul told to Felix. So he mentions one resurrection of the righteous and versus the wicked. Even in the Old Testament, we find Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, uh, mentioning the resurrection as well. Many of those, we read who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, 
these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so even in the Old Testament, even in the book of Daniel, you find one resurrection with two different kinds of people. Uh, Ah Mills will also wonder, look, if Christ comes in glory to reign on the earth, how could people during the millennium still sin? Seems like it's a a bit of a stretch. And Ah Mills will also argue that uh, there doesn't seem to be a real purpose for the millennium. Why would Why would God have a period of time of great righteousness, justice, and peace? Why wouldn't he not just go right into the eternal state? There doesn't seem to be, to the amillennial position, uh, a purpose for the millennium. So essentially, um, what's what's going on here in amillennial theology? All the major events take place at once. Christ comes back, a resurrection of believers and unbelievers, the final judgment, then the new heavens and the new earth, and the eternal state. That's what uh, the Amil position is. And that's, uh, these are some of the reasons why uh, people have adopted those positions. You'll notice that largely it's based upon uh, their understanding of Scripture. Uh, but there are some problems with that position. And that's what I want to share with you for, for a moment or two with uh, amillennialism. Uh, they argue, for instance, that uh, Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible where we see an explicit mention of the millennium. But let me ask you, how many times does the Bible have to say something before you're obligated to believe it? (laughs) Do you think once is enough? Does God have to say it more than once for it to be doctrine? So I'm not sure that that holds uh, water very well. We have no problem, uh, by the way, uh, believing in Genesis chapter 11, the story of Babel. It's the only place in the Bible that talks about the division of the nations and the confusion of languages. But that's one place, and we really don't... Uh, argue too much about that. Uh, Secondly, the millennium does not seem all that obscure if you simply take Revelation 20 in a fairly straightforward way. Uh, Our millennialists seem to think, uh, be confused about uh, things like that. And other passages, I think this is a key issue, other passages seem to confirm the nature of the millennium as a period of great peace and justice and righteousness yet short of what we would expect in the eternal state. Remember the Amil position uh, is that, uh, in, in fact, the, the only place that there is any mention of the millennium is Revelation 20. But here you have passages like Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is speaking about the Messiah, obviously. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so in the Old Testament in Isaiah we see a picture of a period of time of great reigning of Messiah, peace and justice and righteousness, even though there are still sinners. Nevertheless, that kind of uh, period of time uh, takes place as well. And there are other passages that seem to speak of that same kind of period, not quite like the eternal state, when sin is completely eradicated, but nevertheless a period of extraordinary peace and justice and righteousness. I've listed a number of them on the screen, including Psalm 72, Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14, 1 Corinthians 15, as a matter of fact, and then a couple of passages in Revelation 2.27 and 12.5, all of which indicate some period of time short of the eternal state in which, in fact, Christ reigns and rules in such a significant and powerful way that there is peace and justice and righteousness. You'll also remember that I mentioned that the binding of Satan is sort of minimized uh, in the Revelation passage by the amillennial position. They look at the binding of Satan as merely to prevent him from deceiving the nations. 
but the Revelation 20 seems to indicate that there's more to it than that, that Satan is imprisoned, that he really can't do much of anything in the world during the millennium. And remember, the omnil position really has the millennium taking place like right now, during the church age. Uh, but then you have Peter saying things like this in his first epistle. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Doesn't seem all that bound to me, does it to you? Uh, you have uh, the event in, with Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said, Ananias, listen to this, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So it's, he ascribes Satan lying or, or causing Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. So Satan is active and alive. Again, after the death of Christ, after he has supposedly established the kingdom, Nevertheless, Satan is active. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. The demonic world is active in the church age, according to that passage. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That seems to explicitly deny Satan or deny the, the idea that Satan really is unable to work during the church age in the things that he does. 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And then 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. So it doesn't seem like you can adopt and recognize that in the church age, Satan is active, but the omnil position is that he is not active. And that's a problem with, pre, with uh, amillennialism. Another problem with amillennialism is the way they understand the phrase came to life, as it describes the, uh, the resurrection or coming to life of the martyrs and those who were faithful during the tribulation. Uh, the word is zao in, the, uh, in, uh, in Greek, but it's never used anyplace else to refer to simply coming into the presence of God like a spirit, in a spiritual kind of sense. It is most naturally used of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, uh, that's the way it's used of Jesus himself in the book of Revelation, and he is said to be uh, the one who, has been, who, uh, who came to life. Um, also, how can there be only one resurrection when Revelation speaks of a first resurrection? If there's a first resurrection, guess what? There's got to be another one somewhere, right? There's got to be a second resurrection, so that doesn't make sense. Um, other passages the Amils used to speak of the resurrection, by the way, don't deny that there could be two resurrections. They only sort of put them together, believers and unbelievers. And uh, so it's not impossible to imagine there being rebellious but compliant people, living as sinners even during the reign of Christ. And uh, God may have purposes for the millennium that we know nothing about. So the Amil position is, is held, um, I think, faithfully and, uh, and coherently by a number of people, Bible-believing Christians, but I do think there are some issues or problems with that uh, position. Uh, Postmillennialism shares a lot in common with amillennialism. Uh, Postmillennialism takes the position that uh, when you have something like the Great Commission, there is an expectation of power and authority and success in the gospel ministry. So Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you would expect with a statement like that, that we will go. And, and win and be successful and the church age will expand all across the globe and that eventually will expand to such a degree as that we will have a reign of peace and righteousness and justice, and justice that we never had before. That's the position of post-millennialism, that the millennium basically is introduced by the church, grows at the end of the church age, and Christ comes at the end of it. Uh, Post-mills uh, talk about the parables of the kingdom 
which indicates that there is gradual growth in the kingdom of God, but that eventually the kingdom fills the earth with influence. So Matthew chapter 13, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in the field and is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So you have this pervasive success being proclaimed by Jesus in these parables of the kingdom. Uh, right after that, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And so that success of the gospel proclamation all across the world uh, is, is spoken of by the post mills. Uh, the post-millennial position indicates that the world is becoming more and more Christian, even in spite of persecution. The nature of the kingdom is, uh, is sometimes different between uh, pre-mills and post-mills. Pre-mills think that there is a really extensive transformation of people who are compliant with Jesus, whereas uh, post-mills really seem to think that it's just simply a growing influence of Christianity over our world. Uh, with those things in mind, there are some problems, I think, with post-millennialism. One of them is that the Great Commission doesn't necessarily imply the conversion of everybody or the even the majority of populations. The parables of the kingdom that I mentioned don't indicate the extent to which the kingdom will grow. Certainly there is growth, but they don't indicate that the whole world will then all of a sudden become permeated with biblical Christianity. Uh, the world is becoming more Christian, I think, if you look at the expanse of the gospel, but it's also becoming more evil all at the same time. I think that's important to recognize as well. And then there are New Testament passages that seem to explicitly deny postmillennialism. Passages like this one. Remember, postmillennialism is an optimistic view of the church at the end of the age, that in fact things get better and better and better. Um, but Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for ga the gate is wide, and, uh, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so that's not a particularly optimistic perception about how many people are going to be converted to Christ in the end. Luke 18, 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? That Jesus is indicating probably not much. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Doesn't sound like great gospel success among many, does it? And then Matthew 24, when it speaks about the Great Tribulation in the Olivet Discourse, uh, really attaches the second coming of Christ to the Great Tribulation. And so uh, all the passages that teach the return of Christ could come soon, and we must be ready, to, ready for it, seem to deny this, the presence of a millennial kingdom as well. So postmillennialism held by people for the biblical reasons that I mentioned but at the same time having a number of issues or problems uh, with biblical text at the same time. So now we move into premillennialism. As I uh, mentioned a few moments ago, there are Old Testament passages that describe times that uh, seem to be the millennial kind of kingdom that is established in, in Revelation 20, but fall short of the eternal state. I read you a passage from Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65 puts it this way, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So you still have people. It's better, but they still die. Okay? That's, it's not the eternal state at this particular point in time. I read you the passage from Isaiah 11 a few moments ago. Uh, and then I've, other passages I've also mentioned and listed for you in uh, Isaiah 11 
and Psalm 72 and Zechariah chapter 14. And uh, if you're keeping score at home, you can look up each one of those, uh, those passages. Uh, there are also some New Testament passages that teach a future millennium as well, right in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, two uh, in the letters to the churches, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my fathers. Jesus promises that there will be believers reigning and ruling with him. 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That describes a coming of Christ in reigning and ruling. And I also think observations are relevant out of, out of Revelation chapter 20. The binding and imprisonment of Satan is in a bottomless pit. That seems to indicate a far greater restriction than either is implied by the amillennialists or the postmillennialists. And the phrase came to life is best to be taken as bodily resurrection. Etzazon is the Greek word, and it's used in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, where Jesus identifies himself is one who died and came to life. And that obviously refers to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. A reigning with Christ is said to be future. That's consistent with passages like Luke 19 and 1 Corinthians 6 and the passages in Revelation that I've referred to in the letters to the churches. And nowhere does Scripture say that uh, believers in an intermediate state, kind of in the, in the soul state, when they haven't been reunited with their bodies, are reigning with Christ. And so uh, I think premillennialism uh, is sort of the plain text meaning of the passage in Revelation chapter 20. Now what about the, other, the final position, the tribulation issue and the pre-tribulation rapture or the pre-tribulation position of premillennialism? Um, that, that position holds that the tribulation will be a pouring out of the wrath of God, which because of that nature is not appropriate for Christians to experience. And so pre-tribulational uh, premillennialists, I know that's hard to say and hard to think about, uh, refer to passages like Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, uh, where Jesus says to this church, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That seems to indicate that the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. If Christ returns after the tribulation and defeats all his enemies, where will the unbelievers come from? That's what the uh, pre-tribs would say, from who, those who are necessary to populate the millennial kingdom. And so pre-tribulational uh, premillennialists has that uh, basically involving the Jewish people. Jewish believers who have become Christians during the tribulation, they're the ones who will mainly populate the millennial kingdom in non-glorified bodies. And their position also makes it possible that Christ could come at any moment, imminently, uh, without any other signs that need to occur before the second coming of Christ. However, I think there are still some problems with the pre-tribulational rapture position, and here are some of them. First of all, the New Testament doesn't necessarily indicate that all the suffering that Christians will experience is necessarily part of the wrath of God. Wickedness is said to multiply toward the end, as we have seen in some of the passages in the New Testament. Also, the letter to the church in Philadelphia that we just read, that they would be kept from the hour of trial, is not enough evidence to say that the whole church would be removed before the tribulation period. And Christ's imminent return, that it could come at any moment, is not dependent necessarily on pre-tribulational uh, premillennialism. Uh, the pre-trib position also uh, makes a hard distinction between the church and Israel. And quite honestly, I think that hard distinction is, is hard to come by when you read passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, uh, which indicates that the Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ, that the dividing wall 
that has separated Gentiles from the commonwealth of Israel has been broken down and the two become one new man. It's hard to have two different bodies uh, recognized in that passage. And also Romans 11 in the same case. When we have one olive tree, Gentiles' branches grafted in by faith. Jewish branches cut off by unbelief, but grafted in again in the end. You still have one uh, fundamental olive tree uh, in which that takes place. Other New Testament passage, passages teach the return of Christ and the rapture, indicating it to be a public event. A pre-trib position is that the rapture of the church will be kind of a secret rapture, that all of a sudden the Christians will disappear. But in fact, when you look at passages like uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Is that secret? With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we, will, we shall always be with the Lord. That doesn't seem to be a secret rapture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and following. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And so we have the trumpet sounding before the millennium. Um, and by the way, there is no New Testament passage that I can find you can help me with this, and you can change my mind about it if you wish. But I have not found any New Testament passage teaching two second comings. Remember, the pre-tribulation rapture position has a second coming of Christ to rapture the church. And then seven years later, another second coming of Christ for the judgment and the resurrection of unbelievers. Okay? Or, or actually just the, the, second coming, the second coming to establish the millennium. I shouldn't say resurrection of unbelievers. But I don't find any New Testament passage which teaches two second comings. Now, if there is one, you can correct me at the end of the message tonight. But I don't find it there. So anyway, uh, that's, uh, those are some problems with the pre-tribulational position uh, with respect to premillennialism. There are some other variations. People have uh, tried to uh, figure out some alternatives to all of these positions. There's a mid-tribulation rapture position in which Christians go through uh, some great suffering and persecution for half of the time, and then, uh, then they are taken out of the world in the rapture, and then the last three and a half years are the wrath of God being poured out on others. Uh, and that does, is not without some scriptural foundation because we have a couple of passages in which the tribulation is divided into three and a half year periods, including Daniel, in which the seven years and Daniel are, are cut in half. Uh, but I don't see where there is a text which indicates the removal of believers at the midpoint of a tribulation. Uh, so those are some insights into uh, these different positions. You could probably uh, take a wild guess and figure out where I land on this. However, let me tell you something. Here are my, my final two points that I need to make. I want us to understand this evening. Uh, I know that as I've gone through this time, some of you have had to try to manage your blood pressure. I just know how people are. And that's okay. You can wrestle with these things and that's fine. I really appreciated that, that Jack played soon and very soon. Because the sooner Jesus comes back, then we'll have this all figured out and he will tell us what the right answer is. And I will praise God for that, soon and very soon. And so the first thing that we need to do is make sure that we have grace with one another. Remember that many godly people have held all of these positions. Bible-believing Christians, serious about the scriptures, have held all of these positions. And I think it's important to remember that. Um, historic premillennialism seems to have in its favor longevity, dating all the way back to the patristic period. The early church fathers appeared to be historic premillennialists. Amillennialists, Augustine, arguably the greatest Christian theologian in the first 1,000 years of Christian history, 
was said to be the father of amillennialism. And many in reformed theological camps have adopted amillennialism over time as well, though it's certainly not all. What about postmillennialism? You might be interested to know that one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, was postmillennial. Now, why do you think he was postmillennial? Well, he lived during what period? The Great Awakening. And he saw a transformation in New England during a period of time that reinforced his understanding that the gospel was going to have enormous success. And that, in fact, the United States, well, actually, it was America. It wasn't the United States then. You know, we think of, of uh, Jonathan Edwards as, a Brit as a, an American theologian. He was really a British theologian living in America because this was before the, uh, day the, the independence. So he, but he looked at America being the city set on a hill which would greatly influence the expanse of the gospel and that we would see revival all over the world and it would transform people, leading them out of sin. And so it was natural for him to think that there would be great success in the gospel. He was post-millennial. wasn't long, by the way, before sort of disillusioned with how that uh, awakening turned out. But that's beside the point. He was post-millennial. And then pre-tribulational premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism has actually been probably the majority report among evangelical Bible-believing Christians for the last hundred years or so. Uh, probably the majority report even in this church. Uh, it's important, however, to recognize that uh, that particular position with respect to the millennium uh, it was very recent in its development starting only in the 19th century through the influence of John Nelson Darby. And so English and American uh, Bible-believing Christians have tended to adopt dispensational premillennialism, but it really doesn't go back much farther than the 19th century to find its origin. But the point of the matter is that all of us have brothers and sisters that we love and care about and who love the Lord Jesus and that care about the scriptures that are, uh, represent each of these different points of view. The last thing that I would say about the millennial positions is that be careful about importing your, world, your view of the world into your eschatology. What I mean by that is, is this. Generally speaking, when things are going really, really, really well in the church, people tend to be post-mill. They tend to be post-millennial, like Jonathan Edwards. On the other hand, when things are going really, really, really poorly, they tend to be pre-mill. Nothing can change this unless Jesus comes back, right? And he's going to come back, and that's when the millennial, millennium will happen. And so Jesus has to come back because things are going, pardon the expression, to hell in a handbasket, and he must return. And so when things are going poorly, people tend to be uh, pre-mill. And then when things are kind of a mixture, there's both the growth of the kingdom and there's the growth of evil in the world. Uh, ten, people can tend to be amillennial. And so a lot of times the life circumstances, the way people see the world, tends to influence the way they understand their position on the millennial. Better instead, however, to root your eschatology in your understanding of scripture. The world has its ups and downs. It always has. It always will till Jesus comes soon and very soon. Right? You can play that every week, Jack, by the way. Soon and very soon. But that'll at least give you an idea about where people land with respect to uh, this extraordinary chapter. Uh, I really have appreciated some of the teaching that I've received uh, dealing with the issues of the millennium, uh, particularly as it concerns uh, the, the status of the world today. If you want to see a world of genuine peace and justice and righteousness, oh, how we long for a world like that. Oh, how we long for a world like that. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Soon and very soon. Because that's the only way that we will see genuine peace and justice and righteousness in this world. If you want a world like that, it won't be created by the political machinations 
of any world system, including our own, it will come only because Jesus comes. And so, oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Heavenly Father, give us grace, give us charity, give us wisdom, give us insight, and encourage our hearts knowing that in the midst of all of this, you have a plan, a purpose, to bring about ultimately peace and justice and righteousness in this world and in the world to come, all that in perfection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.